I'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. You know, we're all familiar with our country's national holidays, such as Memorial Day, Independence Day, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and so on. But did you know that there is a list of unofficial holidays for every day of the year? You're probably familiar or heard of some of them. Let me mention just a few in the month of March. March 1 is National Pig Day and also Peanut Butter Lover's Day. Today happens to be multiple personality day, so be careful. The people around you might not be who you think they are. March 14 is National Potato Chip Day, and also Pie Day, not pie as in P-I-E, but pie as in P-I. March 23 is, and I'll get some good reactions to to this, National Puppy Day. March 28 is National Weed Day, and this is the weed that grows in your lawn, not the ones that are still (laughs) illegal to grow in North Carolina. Now, why one would celebrate the dandelions and crabgrass in one's yard, I will never understand. March 31 is Bunsen Burner Day, and that had to be the brainchild of a chemist. And so on. You you can find a holiday for just about anything. Now, it was entertaining for me to look at this list of unofficial holidays, and most of them were good for a laugh. But there was one that caught my attention. July 3... It's National Disobedience Day. My curiosity led me to look further at this quote-unquote holiday, and I found a few websites that in all seriousness describe the significance of this day. And this is an excerpt from one of the sites. Quote, National Disobedience Day was created some time ago by people who were simply tired of having to spend their entire lives doing what someone told them to do. And who could blame them? they do seem to have a valid point. From the moment we're born, there are always people around us telling us what we should do and making demands of us. First, our parents, then our teachers, then our bosses and our spouses, not to mention, of course, the law. And although having certain rules in our lives to live by is undoubtedly a good thing that helps keeps us balanced and stable, it is easy for us to feel like we've had enough of constantly having to obey someone. Disobedience day exists so decent law-abiding people can take a break and let loose a little." Unquote. Now in that excerpt, it does say that having certain rules in our lives to live by is undoubtedly a good thing that helps keeps us balanced and stable. That's the acknowledgement of the importance of law and order, but it also admits that within human nature, there is this drive, this desire to break those laws, a desire to rebel against authority. In contemporary culture, 
A view that promotes um, an open defiance of authority seems to enjoy an increasing level of popularity where we're talking about parental authority, the authority of teachers and bosses, governmental authority, ecclesiastical authority, and so on. But God's Word espouses a view of authority that is 180 degrees from what contemporary culture promotes. And in the book we're currently studying, God calls Christ's followers to be in submission to various types of authority. Now we turn our attention to the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. Miriam read verses 13 to 17, and we will be spending most of our time this morning looking at those verses. But it would be good for us to consider the verses that came just before, starting with verse 9, the one that Tom preached on last week. And let me read verses 9 to 12. But you are a a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So this is, these are the verses that came before what we're going to be uh, looking at today. Now, recall that in the first part of this letter, from its beginning to chapter 2, verse 10, Peter reminds believers of their new identity in Christ. He then, in the second part of this letter, tells the readers how to live in this world in light of that new identity. Now, the transition takes place in verses 9 to 12, which I just read. And what Peter does is establish once more in the minds of the people the identity they have assumed as followers of Christ. And by the way, as fellow believers, we share the same identity. So he reminded them that they are, among other things, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God, people called out to live in the light, a people who have received mercy and aliens and strangers in this world. And after establishing their identity, he proceeds to tell them what is expected of them. And as was pointed out, um, well, that is, what's, uh, to keep their conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And Tom pointed out last week that this letter was written to people who were Gentiles, in their ethnicity. But because of their new identity, Peter made a distinction between them and those who did not believe in Christ. In our passage for today, Peter begins by giving instructions on how to to relate to the government or ruling authorities. As aliens and strangers in this world who are part of God's holy nation, we are called, in verse 12, to live good lives before the world. And as a manifestation of that, it says in verse 13 that we are to submit ourselves to the ordinances of men. That sounds simple enough for us. But let's bear in mind that Peter was not writing to a people who elected their governmental representatives and leaders, but rather this was a people subject to violent persecution. The the letter was written between 64 and 68 AD during the time of the Emperor Nero. 
And so believers at the time were receiving treatment that would bring out from us the worst possible responses. Anger, resentment, bitterness, and even outright rebellion. But Peter is pleading with these people to behave in a manner that is honorable to a watching world. And that is done by submitting to the ordinances of men who are in authority over them. Now, there's a somewhat puzzling phrase in verse 13 in his call to submit. Believers are to submit to the ordinances of men for whose sake? For the Lord's sake. He does not call believers to follow the commandments of God for the Lord's sake or to follow men's ordinances for man's sake. And either one of those would seem to make more sense. But no, we are to follow the ordinances of men for the Lord's sake. And that begs the question, how does it benefit Christ when we obey the police, our parents, government leaders, and so on? To answer that, we have to go beneath the the surface to find the deeper problem being addressed here deeper than just our refusal to submit to our bosses and parents, etc. The deeper problem is our sinfulness, which is fundamentally a rebellion and defiance to God's laws. Crimes are committed in our society because we are by nature lawless. And that's why the embodiment of the Antichrist is referred to in Scripture in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 as the man of lawlessness. We all understand that when we rebel against people in direct authority over us, we are effectively defying whoever gave them that authority as well. Take, for example, an imaginary scenario whereby a representative from the White House comes to my door and tells me that I am to have dinner with the President of the United States. I told you it was imaginary. If I refuse, I am ultimately defying the President of the United States. Not his representative, but who sent him. But even though the president holds one of the most powerful offices in the world, his authority is still a delegated authority. And of course, scripture leaves no doubt as to who the ultimate authority is. It is God himself. He rules over creation, just like what John was reading in the beginning. He rules over all of that. And as he he does so, He delegates that authority first and foremost to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said in Matthew Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ said. And from there, it trickles down to human institutions and on to individuals. In Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 2, it says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. It is God who institutes governments and raises its leaders. That's why we are called to pray for these leaders and as far as possible submit to their authority. All leaders are in place because God placed them there. No exceptions. It doesn't say only the good ones. 
And as an example, we have in the New Testament the Roman emperor, uh, I'm sorry, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, to whom our Lord said these words in John 19:11. You have no authority over me at all unless it has been given you from above. So in the end, all of us, leaders of nations included, will answer to the authority of Christ. And so even if the world is going crazy, being lawless and defying all kinds of authority, we are to be different. We are to be models of submission to whatever form of authority we are called to submit to. Children to parents, students to teachers, employees to employers, citizens to governments, wives to husbands, and so on. These are authority structures set up by God. Now, each of these human relationships have their own unique characteristics. For example, the relationship between an employer and an employee would be different from that between a parent and a child. Those relationships will be covered in upcoming Sundays as we continue our study of this book. But for this morning, we will consider the relationship that Peter was focusing on in today's passage, that of a person subject to the rule of governments or governing bodies. Now, it's especially relevant that we look at what Scripture has to say because we recently had a new set of elected leaders for this country. And whether or not we agree with them does not change what God asks us to do. The command to follow the ordinances of government is easy to understand. We are quite familiar with many of them. To pay taxes, to serve in a jury when we're called to observe the speed limit. I just felt a measure of conviction with that one. And so on. Probably you too, right? For the most part, they are straightforward and we obey them and we usually don't even give them a second thought. But there could be situations when the application of the command to follow the law may be excruciatingly difficult, especially when we are being asked to do something we think is wrong. That is why in the study of Christian ethics, a question that often comes up is, should a Christian engage in civil disobedience? To what degree should a Christian be obedient to earthly rulers who may pass ungodly and wicked laws? Are there situations when a believer not uh, must, not may, but must act in a non-submissive manner? And the answer is yes. There are situations, and it shouldn't surprise us. In fact, we can find an example from the life of this author of this epistle that we're looking at. In the fifth chapter of Acts, we find the account of the Sanhedrin explicitly forbidding Peter and his companions from preaching the resurrected Christ. And what was their answer? We must obey God rather than men. If we were there, perhaps we would have cheered them on and said, All right, Peter, that's telling them. And if we did, we probably would have been flogged. Because that's what happened to them. And that's to point out that there are consequences to civil disobedience. But back to the original question. What if there is a conflict between human laws and God's commands? For a Christian, the only choice is to follow God's commands. If human laws command us to do something God forbids or forbids us from doing something God commands, we are to follow God's law. Other than that, we are always to obey authorities placed over us. 
And as I mentioned earlier, the application of this principle may be exceedingly difficult. But one thing should be clear on this issue. Christians should not take this principle as a license for civil disobedience when we simply disagree with the authorities or if we're inconvenienced or if by obeying we suffer. Consider Jesus' earthly parents. When the edict came out for them to travel to comply to the census mandated by the Roman government, they complied. And they were more than just inconvenienced. I would say that there was physical and financial suffering resulting from their obedience and their submission to the edict. Now, I would guess that most everyone here doesn't look forward to paying taxes. If you enjoy it, I'd like to talk to you and get some tips from you, how you manage that. Personally, I have mixed feelings about it. I know the primary and noble purpose of taxation is to build infrastructure and fund programs for the benefit of the citizenry. But mixed in with those good intentions is wasteful spending and funding programs that go against my principles. That part I don't like and certainly gives me pause. But you know what? Every year, I send it in anyway. I'm called to do that. You're called to do that. And truth be told, it's not as bad as many people might think. In many places in the world, people are called to do far worse things when they submit to governing authorities. I mean, those who were able to attend the showing of the movie The Insanity of God a few weeks ago got a visual reminder of that reality. And going back to our passage, verse 15 states that it is the will of God that Christians do good to silence the ignorance of foolish people. It's not uncommon nowadays to be unjustly labeled, accused, ostracized, mistreated, and criminalized for merely identifying with Christ. And this is not unique in our time. It has been that way since the days of the early church. And God's prescription to silence the foolish critic has not changed either, to live good lives before the world. And one of the ways we can do that is by being good, law-abiding citizens. One of the ch early church apologists, Justin Martyr, wrote a letter to Emperor Antoninus Pius concerning, among other things, the unjust persecution of Christians who were doing nothing wrong but were being labeled as insurrectionists because they would not bow down to the emperor. Now this letter, entitled The First Apology of Justin, is a piece that is worthy of your time to read and I commend it to you. Uh, in fact, I included a link to the full text in this week's blog post. Here's an excerpt, the portion where he is asking the emperor to investigate the charges against, against Christians who were more than willing to have their lives inspected for any wrongdoing. Try to stay with me as I read it. Quote, It is our task, therefore, to afford to all an opportunity of inspecting our life and teachings, lest on account of those who are accustomed to be ignorant of our affairs, we should incur the penalty due to them for mental blindness. In other words, he's saying, come on, inspect our lives. Take a look at how we live. And it is your business, now referring to the emperor, and it is your business when you hear us to be found as reason demands good judges. For if when ye have learned the truth, you do not what is just, you will be before God without excuse. We expect you to be a good judge of the way we live our lives or you're going to have to answer to God. That's what he's saying. 
by the mere application of a name, nothing is decided, either good or evil, apart from the actions implied in the name. And indeed, so far at least as one may judge from the name we are accused of, that is Christians, we are a most excellent people. Unquote. I know that was a mouthful, but wh what he's saying is this. Emperor, if you look at our lives, we are model citizens, careful to obey the rule of law and among the most law-abiding among your subjects. And he later states that the one thing they cannot do is worship the emperor as God. Yet they will bend over backward and follow the law of the land as far as possible without betraying the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one who commands them to be submissive. And it is for his sake, the glory of his name, that they live lives as good citizens and thereby silence their accusers. Moving on to verse 16, it says that we as believers have freedom in the Lord, but we are not to use our liberty as a license to sin. We remain bondservants to God, slaves to Christ, and we are called to maintain order even if the world plunges headlong into lawlessness with everybody doing what is right in their own eyes. God is a God of order and not chaos, and we are called to bear witness to that truth, even if it entails painful and humiliating submission to those in authority over us who may be godless. We do so for the sake of Christ our King, that in our humiliation we may be glorified. Now, standing before you, preaching on this, I will be the first to admit that this is easier said than done. And we could be left asking the question, how can anyone do this? How can we choose to submit to the governing authorities when doing so brings persecution or pain? And the answer is tucked away in verse 17, and it may, may not be immediately obvious. Verse 17 ends with this phrase, Fear God, honor the emperor. God is mentioned ahead of the emperor for a reason. If our fear of God is right, we can honor the emperor properly. Conversely, if we don't fear God, we will not honor the emperor properly. We might ignore the emperor, we might want to usurp the emperor, we might even end up worshiping the emperor However, a right fear of God leads to a natural fear and honor for earthly emperors, kings, and rulers. It boils down to us resting in God's sovereignty, bearing in mind, as it says in the book of Daniel, chapter 2, that God sets up kings and removes them. And at the end of the day, if we don't fear God, or if we fear God, we don't have to fear man. Jesus submitted to Pilate, but did not fear him at all. Again, this is not to ignore the reality of pain in the whole discussion. The fear of God does not automatically remove persecution. But even as we experience pain in submitting for his sake, we must not forget that he is also our hope. Let me read from 1 Peter, but this time from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, keeping in mind the context of this passage I'm about to read is that of suffering for Christ's sake. Quote, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? 
But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Unquote. A part of this passage is usually used as a call from the Lord to be prepared to defend Christianity in the marketplace. That is, being an apologist for the faith. But the call to be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope we have is in the context of suffering. If anyone asks, why are you willing to suffer? Our answer is that our hope is in Christ and that the present sufferings of this world cannot compare to the glory we have in honoring Him. And that is one of the greatest apologetics we can have for a watching world. In the beginning, I referred to our country's unofficial holidays. Looking at it, I found no submission to authority day or something similar. That's not a popular notion these days. Yet as Christians, we are called to be submissive to those in authority over us and that we should do it willingly and not wait to have to be coerced. You might say that followers of Christ should observe submission to authority day every day. And we, we, we do have to keep in mind that we do this for the Lord's sake, to honor Him in this world. Let's pray. Let me pray for us. Father, we confess that before you, individually and as a people, we fail to be models of submission to the various authorities you have placed over us. Our sin makes us shake our fists in rebellion, and we forget that in doing so, we dishonor you. Lord, help us to repent of this and give us grace to live in humble obedience to your call to be submissive that your name will be glorified in our lives and among those who do not know you. We ask this in the name of the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.